Hello, and welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast with Winifred A. Winston and LaDerek Horn, the show that unapologetically focuses on helping Black and underrepresented minorities navigate the special education process. We want to help raise awareness in the Black and Brown community, remove the stigma about learning disabilities, and provide you access to professionals in the space of dyslexia and special education that you need to hear from. Today, LaDerek and I will be speaking with Nicole Nikki Francis for our Badass Parent segment. Nikki, we are so excited to have you today. Welcome to the Black and Dyslexic Podcast. Winifred and LaDerek, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Let's do this. All right. Yes, yes. <laughs> so Nikki, tell us a little bit about, just a little bit about you and your background before we get into your daughter being neurodivergent. Well, I think an important part of my story is I'm first-generation American. I am a graduate of Howard University. I attended law school. I think um, I am currently employed at a very large, the leading education company in the world. I think those three things are pretty important because they inform a lot of how I've come at uh, my journey. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now tell us about your daughter. I know you have a daughter. Um, so, <laughs> so tell us about her and when you initially thought something's not right here. Okay. I'm going to tell you this story. So I was privileged enough to be able to stay at home with my daughter for the first 15 months of her life. Right. And so in that time, you know, we're learning ABCs, one, two, threes, the cow goes moo. I was very in tune with her learning style. I knew what she could do. I was her, literally her first teacher. And then when at about month 16, I took her into pre-K, right? Preschool, preschool, they call it. And she was doing very well there. You know, at that age, everything is hands-on. Everything is by touch and by play. And she was hitting her milestone. She was a very vivacious little kid doing very well. Fast forward, I take her in to a public school, right? I register her for school. I'm like, I have done what I am supposed to do. This is a well-prepared child. I'm like, I'm brushing my shoulders off. I'm excited, right? So she goes into kindergarten and at that time, literacy really is about your sight words. She's off the chart with her sight words. The teacher said, I just stopped showing her sight words because she just, she knew all the words that I'd been showing her. And I'm thinking, awesome. She's reading at that level. Her literacy is high. We're off to a great start. I'm trying to like condense a pretty involved story. When she gets into first grade, they do what's called a Dibbles test. I think that's how we uh, pronounce it, Dibbles. She's in um, green and beyond, meaning she's ahead. She is pacing at a much farther level than her peers at that time. And I'm like, okay, good. She's going to be a reader. I have a reader on my hands. That was in September. By October, she didn't move. The testing did not move at all. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. By second grade, Devil's testing again in September. She's now in the um, in the green. So forgive me, 
Blue is she's way ahead. Now she's in green, which means she's right on pace with her peers. But understanding my child the way I understand my child, that means she's trending in the wrong direction. I raise that with the school and go, hey, why is it that I'm not seeing movement? I didn't see movement last year. And now she's in the green. And they kind of give me this, they're there, mom. Right? Right. She's fine. Don't you worry. And I'm like, okay, but I'm not worried. I am making an inquiry. And I'd like your professional opinion about why she might be trending in the other direction. They didn't give me much information. And so I started to think, what's going on here? On top of that, my daughter, who had always loved to learn, loved to learn, started saying things to me in the morning when we go when we go off to school. And you got to remember, I'm like the mommy, right? Like I'm turning on the music on the way to school. We're singing at the top of our lungs. Like I'm preparing her like we're going to have fun, right? Like because I understood how necessary it is for kids to really be fired up about learning. And so I'm like doing my part. We're in the car. We're listening to Kids Bop. We're listening to the ABC one, two, three songs, right? And she asks me to turn the radio down and says, when we pull up, I'll never forget this day. We pull up and she says to me, mommy, I don't, I don't want to go in there. I don't want to go to school, mommy. You teach me, mommy. Can't you teach me? Now, she at this point has an understanding that I work for a very large education management company. In her mind, she's equating that with your teacher. Why aren't you just teaching me? Because, And she's very clear. She says to me, they can't teach me, mommy. And I was like, now she's what, at this point, she's six and she's picking up on something ain't right. They can't teach me, mommy. And I'm like, oh, come on, baby. Listen, let we'll go over your homework. I'll, you know, we'll read tonight. Well, you know, I'm thinking maybe there's a little anxiety there. She met up with something that she was struggling with a little bit. That went on every day for the next two years. Oh, with increasing anxiety with increasing dread in her voice. And she was very clear. They can't teach me, mommy. They don't know how to teach me. You teach me, mommy. At the same time, this downward trend continues to where now she's not on reading level. Her testing is coming back. It had gone from blue to green to yellow to orange to red. My child is now officially just not reading, just not progressing in her reading. And I know she can do it. And so what's happening, school, what's what's happening here? Can you give me data? Because I know her when I work with her at home and when I work with her one-on-one, I had data is what I'm getting at. I had data on my child. I also knew just from my own personal research that she was a tactile and kinesthetic learner. And I started to make the connection that part of her dread and anxiety was because she was now in an environment that mandated that she sit still, face forward, fingers on the lips, raise your hand before you, right? So the environment started to impact her. And I thought that's what it was. So at that time, I thought she needs a different environment. And I will, I'll start working on that. Nikki, can you explain that for parents who may not understand what, what that means and what that Mm -hmm. looks like in the education environment? You mean um, tactile and kinesthetic? Yes. All children, and this is why play is so important, 
all children learn, especially in that very early childhood, they learn by doing, they learn by touching, they learn by, um, they're mimicking, they're modeling. That's how they learn to walk. That's how they acquire speech, right? You practice babies babble until they say mama or dada. And then there's a response that's positive and they go, oh, I'm figuring out this language thing. Well, Zola, even beyond her toddler years, I noticed that in order for her to say, understand that um, A says ah and A, we had to take her finger, right? And trace the letters. I had sensory kind of stations around. So she's making the connection, not just with her brain, but with her touch, with her sight. We would go for a quote unquote, we go for a job and we'd sing the ABC. We'd sing the alphabet. We, I don't know, early math. I don't know if you guys remembered that song. Um, a, E, A, E, I, O, U. And sometimes why? Y'all remember that <laughs> early course, disco yeah, song? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, right, yes. <laughs> but I was like, oh, that's how we'll learn the difference between consonants and vowels. It's a song. So we'd be walking around the house dancing and singing. Cat goes, you know, meow, dog goes bark, right? That's how she learned. And I noticed that even beyond her toddler years, that's how she wanted to learn. If I forced her to sit down and with what's called the banking method, right? Where you're just depositing information into the kids. They're just sitting there and looking and, right? It didn't connect with her. She needed to be moving her body and touching. Touching is tactile. Kinesthetic is the motion. Some kids learn by jump rope. Did you ever see Akila and the Bee? Oh, yeah. yeah. Go back and see and watch that movie. That movie is awesome. The point at which her coach, which is played by the actor Lawrence Fishburne, he um, figured out that the language, the words, the spellings connected for her if she were jump roping. Do you, uh, you guys remember that scene where he, right? There's something right. in the syncopation. That's not by accident. We are Black people. We are African people. We are driven by the drum. We have a rhythm that moves through our DNA. It's a different, if you look at Black people all around the world, there's movement there. And that comes from such an internal, universal, powerful place. It's that same movement that gets our little boys in trouble sometimes, right? And they get labeled as disruptive. They get labeled as not paying attention, defiant. But it's the rhythm in them. And I very quickly realized that Zola could not be institutionalized out of her Blackness, out of that rhythm. Her DNA was stronger than the environment. And she needed to be in an environment that honored her way of learning. So did, were you able to then get her assessed by the school? So, oh, goodness. The assessment at the school, I learned very quickly, is a chess game. <laughs> and they're, they're constantly trying to figure out how to reset the board. It took her getting into the yellow zone in her testing for them to say, okay, there's a problem, right? So it wasn't when she went from blue to green. It wasn't when she went from um, green. I'm sorry, it was uh, orange. When she went from green to yellow, it was when she went from yellow to orange. So now and she's behind. Now she's behind. 
And the whole time I'm going, she's trending in the wrong direction. She's trending in the wrong direction. I'm up at the school. I'm volunteering. I am talking to the reading specialists and the principal. I am trying to embed myself into the environment so that I can understand this game, this chess game, and know the players. And I finally, you know, uh, had a conversation with the reading specialist and I said, this is a problem. And she said, put it in writing. She was the first one to help me understand. And look, I'm legally trained. I know that nothing, nothing matters until it's in writing. <laughs> so I, I put it in writing. Hey, there's a trend here. She is now behind. I would like to get her tested. I am concerned that she would, I'm trying to remember some of the catchphrases and buzzwords to get their attention. The special ed coordinator reached out to me. We had a meeting. At that point, they were still trying to convince me that sometimes children have to regress before they move forward, which I knew not to be true, right? It just, it, it wasn't true for my child. Wait a minute. They I, I don't know if that's true for any child. Right. I've, never, I've never heard that before. Yeah, never. I'm like, what? Sometimes when they're, well, she was home with you for 15 months. She's not used to this learning style. There were all kinds of reasons why they were not wanting to test her until I put it in writing. Can Do you mind sharing, if, if you feel comfortable, could you share what school district you were in? PG I know County Schools. <laughs> Okay, so you're Maryland. in Maryland, and this was I'm Prince George's County Public School System. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was okay. PG Public School System. And if I could just jump in here, because this is a, like an ongoing conversation in my household, is your words are not enough. There's there's something- Your words are not enough. You know, like if, if I can be, you know, like it's something like, you know, people of color here, right? Like there is something about white culture and white institutions where the written word is elevated, right? Like me just talking isn't enough. And yes, there's something about like documentation and building a, like a case, right? Mm-hmm. But it's mm-hmm. only once it's in an email that can be searched and, and everything else, then, then things start moving. Yes. Um, and even in that, it seems like it wasn't even moving initially in the right direction. Right? In the right direction. Because, and I'll also say this, Zola was the quote unquote model child. What she had figured out is, okay, this isn't working for me. So maybe if I just be very still and be very good, she was, she was very preoccupied with being good. She was very much not wanting to be seen as bad, right? And so she became this model child. She was quiet, quiet in terms of um, she hadn't yet learned how to advocate for herself. So in the car with me, She's saying, don't do this, mommy. Don't do this. And uh, they don't know how to teach me. But in the environment, she felt stuck. She felt not heard. And so her default, and because she's observing how other children are being reprimanded, and she's understanding, oh, there are rules here. I'm just going to do my best to be seen as good. And she's a cute kid. So the cute, good kid gets overlooked. And there, there, mommy, is she your only? And so I would say she's my only biological, but they're all mine, right? Like signaling to the environment that this is not me elevating my daughter above, you know, all the other children. This is me saying, 
she's not in the mix because I can see that she's struggling. Again, that's a very African way, Black way of <laughs> engaging the environment, right? As you can tell, I'm pretty um, African-centered, right? And our school system is not built to honor that. And so everything needs to be in writing. So I followed the protocol. I'm like, I sent out my email. I'm talking. We meet with the IEP team or the special education team, because at this point, she did not have an IEP. They're looking at her grades. This is in first grade. They're looking at her grades. She has a, at this point, a C, almost a, you know, D average. At that level, at first grade, they're not grading in that way, but her scoring, her progress is in a CD range. That's not failing. Let's get her tested though, mommy. You're right. We're seeing some trends. They get her tested and I'm still not hip to the game. The testing is just the precursory testing, right? It just says there's a problem. <laughs> well, we know that, right? We already know that there's a problem. The testing didn't go deep enough to figure out what the problem is. But not knowing the game at that point, they said, okay, so there's a problem. We can do a couple of things. Let's, it's not enough for an IEP. Would you agree, mommy? And I'm like, well, what are the things that we can do? Well, we can, um, it was very generic. At that time, I didn't realize it was a 504 that they were talking about. We can give her a little bit more time on testing. We can let her go to the bathroom if she wants to, because she would employ certain coping mechanisms. I have to go to the bathroom. My tummy hurts. I have a headache. All of that now I realize, right, is anxiety. It's the pre-runner to depression in our children. The environment was stressing her. Um, and they would allow her, okay, she can go to the nurse's office. She, she can get a break. We can chunk her information. You know, some of the, I'm sure, some of the language that your audience would be used to, um, we will write down the instructions and give it to her verbally, right? Okay. Let's see if that helps. But none of these things are teaching her how to none read. Of the, none of these things are teaching her how to read. Okay. And I'm at home and I'm realizing that she is at this point still mistaking an H for an N or vice versa. She has a little bit of a lisp. She is pretending to read. She's eager to read, right? You know, they'll, they'll take the book that they're familiar with and read, quote unquote, read the story, but she's not catching some of the, and at that age, it's a little young, but she's not catching some of the inferences in the story. Like just, I'm collecting at this point data and I'm seeing there's a disconnect somewhere for her. Same thing with math. She would see a six and think it's a G. She would call it a G sometimes. Just very, if you're not paying attention, you'd go, oh no, that's a six, honey, but she was flipping it, right? That's a six, honey. But fast forward to second and third grade, she's still doing those sorts of things. Her reading is still not fluid. She's adding in words or taking out words, right? So I'm trying to take you from like when I first started, the alarm bell started going off. And then fast forward two, three years from there, she's still doing the same thing. More testing. We had at that point moved to a different state. We were in North Carolina. So the board got reset for us, so to speak. I give them the same information 
that I and talk to them about um, Zola and her challenges with learning. They test her, but they give her testing that's not much different or the instruments are not that elevated from what she had been given in the past. I'm still not understanding this system. So Winifred, you remember me calling you and going, something's wrong. I'm at this point crying and upset because my child is not an eager learner anymore in this environment. There was a point where um, I'll never forget this night. She's in her room getting ready for bed. She's laying down. Her dolls are her friends. She loves to sing. She's singing to her dolls an original song. And the original song went something like, um, I'm not smart. I used to be, but I'm not anymore. I remember that. I remember you, you remember that? About that. Yeah. And yeah. I was so crushed. And at that point, I realized that I had to take the reins. I had to figure this out. I had to cause a holy hell. And that's when I really, I think this was in, this was in second grade, going into third grade. So over that summer, I'm writing, I'm learning, I'm reading, I'm trying to figure out what is happening, what disrupted her learning. She gets tested again in third grade. And this time I go in with a lot more information. So my language is a little different. I'm holding them accountable in a different way. I'm taking notes. I'm acting as the scribe in our meetings. So I'm sending minutes out after each meeting. I'm playing that accountability game. The written word, right? The written word is powerful. (laughs) So things then started moving. The testing was elevated. It, It came back with, yes, there's a problem. I now realize that there was a lot of code words, a lot of coding in the report that pointed to dyslexia. At the time, I didn't know that those were code words for dyslexia. Things like, I should have pulled out some of her um, old reports, but things like um, her reading fluency was disrupted. I'm trying to remember for for the benefit of the audience, some of the terms. They was using the key words, but like fluency, Phenomic awareness, phenomic awareness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what any of that meant. I didn't know what any of that meant either. Can I ask something just for my benefit and the benefit of the audience? It is clear that y'all know each other and have known (laughs) each other for a for a while, and have supported each other through some some interesting times. All right, so Nikki, you're not just the the person we're interviewing here. So can you just, in a brief nutshell, our children we're in the same preschool uh, together, PPLC. We have supported each other on this parenting journey for a since, almost since inception. I think we were- The kids were like- um, Two? Logan, Logan was six months when we started at PPLC. Yeah. And then Zola's a little older than her and Maddie. So our daughters were in daycare, preschool together. together. And so we- we met with pick up and drop off and the sleepover. So the daycare would have, the daycare would have a monthly sleepover. Parents night out is what it was called. And me, and I'm sure the audience can kind of get a feel for my personality. I wanted to take advantage of that every month. So I would sign up other parents' kids because they had a minimum of five 
that's right in order to do it so then it's like nikki would come pick her up and i'm like oh you're on the list for next month (laughs) (laughs) she wins she wins and we looked forward to those sleepovers because it was the only time we got a break like overnight and so i'd be racing wendy did you put my name on the list and if i could if i could just make the point because i think it's valuable to the audience too it's it's the power of community right like so there there are so many there are so many parents who are struggling through these issues and they do it alone Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, there's value in, in building bridges and then also asking for help, even if it's just like, hey, I'm going through something so y'all can go through it together and help sort of support each other. Yeah, that's what I wanted to say, too. We weren't shy about having the conversation that right. something is something is not right or something is going on with our child. Right. My daughter, Logan, is my only child. And I would get a lot of the oh, you're over the top. You're doing too much. She's smart. She's going to catch on. But Nikki and I weren't afraid. Like I wasn't, I didn't feel offended or or embarrassed or ashamed. I was just seeking help. And then I'm like, oh, okay, we can have these like-minded conversations around, hey, what's going on with your child? Or do you see this? What does this mean? So we were open to have that conversation. I think that's a good point, Winifred, because don't be afraid to be your child's number one advocate. Don't be afraid as a parent to take up space in the room. I think early on, I realized that I needed to be a fixture in the environment so I can study it, so I can learn it. I understand who the players are, but I was playing very nice because I assumed that these educators had my daughter's best interests at heart. And that's not to say that they didn't, but they too are looped in and beholden to the institution and they had to follow certain protocol. If it wasn't in writing, if the parent or or one of her teachers weren't speaking up, it just wasn't gonna happen. So um, as a parent, you have to go in there knowing that you have to approach your child's education process as their number one cheerleader. It's not easy, right? Because if your child is struggling, the experience um, shifts from one of educating the child to now you are in this very steep learning curve. You're trying to support your child. You're trying to understand how this institution works for a child as yours, but you're also trying to find the balance with, with keeping your child motivated, but working with the, the school. Trying to keep the, the peace. system. Trying, trying to, to keep, keep the, the peace. peace. You're trying to collaborate and you're trying to to play, I call it nice, nasty. At Mm -hmm. some point, you've got to get firm with them because like you said earlier, you were playing and you were trying to be nice, but not really understanding how how the game is played. How the game is played. And it's not lost on me that how I approach this with the folks at the school and in the school system could very well impact how my daughter is treated during the day inside this environment where I don't have eyes on her. And keep in mind that I'm also trying to work with her through her anxiety, which just kept escalating. By the way, when we got to North Carolina school system, lovely school, lovely school system, she would say the same thing. Mommy, I like this school, but they don't know how to teach me. Why don't you just teach me? I learned when you were teaching me. Wow. Wow. Take us, bring us back to Maryland, because then you did a very important tutoring program or research study. Tell us about that. Winifred, I get back from North Carolina. I left North Carolina because I realized I had gone to North Carolina with 
the hopes of um, pursuing another um, a graduate degree, right? I wanted to go to UNC and complete a degree in um, a master's in public health. Once I realized that Zola's education, her learning experience, she was struggling, I decided to come back to Maryland where I had more support in terms of family. So I put my own educational aspirations on hold and came back to where um, I had more support. And Winifred, I have to tell your audience that your passion, your fire, your sisterhood, your thirst for information, your insistence on sharing that information, your insistence on supporting me was everything. Um, My daughter would, I'm sure would have been all right, but you, Winifred, changed the trajectory of that process for us in a way that was so beautiful. And I'll I'll forever um, be grateful for how you stepped in and you were in it with me. When I say Winifred was researching and and we were sharing, um, we were on parallel sort of paths with what was happening with our daughters. Anytime she learned new information, she, we, we must've been on the phone at that time, three, four hours a day, sharing information, just trying to figure it out. The power of community is everything. Let me chime in here because I didn't know a lot. And the first tutoring program we used was very, very expensive. I mean, I'm talking $123 per session. Yep. And and Logan was getting 10 sessions a week. Now, Derek, you're the math major. I, I would have to like calculate that. But what I can say it, it adds up to a whole lot of money. That's that, what it adds up to. That, that, that's right. And and I we could not afford it. But you know, I'm just gonna be so transparent. One week we'd pay it, the next week I put it on a credit card. The next week her dad would pay it. The next week I'd put it on a credit card because my daughter had to learn to read. And I did not know there were other options. I did not know there was a, um, you know, the Orton Gillingham Academy. I didn't know right. there were places you could find trained certified dyslexia therapists. And this was the one place that I found. And so I learned about a study that, what was it, Dr. Eden, Dr. Eden was conducting in the area at Georgetown School of Education. Winifred saw a a flyer or a post about the study and immediately called me and immediately sent me the link and said, you need to do this. You need to go ahead and submit information to, to see if you can get into this study. She explained to me because she had done the research that they were doing research on um, students who, it was an ongoing um, study, students who were having trouble with learning, bright children. The, the thing was, they were using the same tutoring program that we were paying all this money for. So well, let me tell you, yes, yeah. Linda Moodbell, I had moved back from North Carolina, living with my brother so that I could pull together the resources needed to help my daughter, to help Zola. I had in my research, found Linda Mood Bell and decided that that was the program that Zola needed. Because in the process of trying to figure out what was going on with my daughter, 
I had gone to the behaviorists and her pediatrician, all of them separately indicated that we think we're dealing with dyslexia here. So when Wendy pulled me up and told me, hey, you got to get in on this study, send your information in. And she indicated that it was Linda Bell. I said, okay. She watched me. She herself walked me through um, the application. She would not let me get back to work. You remember that? She would not let me get back to work and said, you got to do this. So we filled it out together and sent it in. And I think a month or two went by before I heard anything back. In the meantime, I'm living with family members so I can pull resources together to do the Linda Mood Bell program. The program was a lot of money. It was a lot of, I mean, in the tens of thousands mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of money. And so my strategy at that point was I'll just rent a room somewhere <laughs> and take whatever rent or mortgage money, right? Because I was initially saving up to buy a house, but we decided, nope, I decided, nope, that's not what we're going to do. We are going to do this Linda Mood Bell study. The day I was to write the check, for the Linda Mood Bell um, program. I get a call from the researchers at Georgetown, Dr. Eden's team, to say that we had been accepted into the research study and that they were utilizing the exact same program that I was just about to write this like $40,000 check for. And my daughter got that, she, she had access to that resource and that training for the entire summer at no cost to us. This is, it's, as I'm listening to this, of course, I'm like connecting it to my own experience as a dys- dyslexic, but I'm, I'm thinking about all the families that I have come in contact with, not only here in the U.S., but also around the world, mm-hmm. where this is a very similar story. You know, I remember some of the first work I did outside of the U.S. borders was in Bermuda, and it was like, I was talking to families there, and they were like, you know, it's almost common knowledge that if your kid gets dyslexia, you have to mortgage your house, Mm-hmm. and find a school in the U.S. and send them there, right? Um, I have seen even, even well-to-do white families who have, you know, I, to find those resources, I got to move to a whole other state because I can get closer to this one school. Um, you know, there is this, this sad reality of having to feel like you have to move heaven and earth in order to provide an education for your child, something that, you know, particularly at, at this point, given the amount of research around the data that's out there, the decades and decades of understanding around dyslexia, mm-hmm. we wish that, you know, this would be more common knowledge in, in really in all of our public schools, but in schools everywhere. And the interesting thing, though, Derek, is that as I learned more, as I, you know, really embedded myself in understanding the Ortho-Gillingham <laughs> method, is that it would benefit all students. Right. There's no reason that we could employ this method or the methods that we know to work um, for all students because it benefits all students. No one loses. It's a win-win. And yet you've got people who are, you know, taking out a second mortgage or foregoing, you know, their own education ambitions and home buying aspirations to make sure that their children's early education experience gives them what they need to excel later on. They, they need that early education. It's yeah. an indicator of their, their trajectory 
So for how, their later years. How did participating in that program with Dr. Eden help Zola? Okay, so it helps first. It helped Zola's self-esteem as a learner. That team was was excellent. They explained to her that her brain is so special that we wanted to take a look at it. We wanted to study it. They explained to her that she was neurodiverse. Certainly they didn't use that word neurodiversity, right? They used words like special, interesting, exciting. Your brain is exciting. So we want to take a look at it. We want to, we want to learn how it works and we want to help you learn how it works. And do you and do you remember the because I'm I'm key on the language piece and I'm key on like an asset based approach to to disabilities or deficits mm-hmm. like you know using that kind of language did it have an effect on your daughter do you do you remember oh, it Let me tell you she went around telling folks um <laughs> I won't be able to come to camp because my brain is special right <laughs> <laughs> right and um. The researchers want to look at my brain. And I remember some of the other children going, they're going to look, they're going to cut your head. You know, no, no, no. They're going to put me in a machine and take a picture of my brain. Wow. So they, they locked her in. They engaged her in the process very early. But what they also did was, and I think this is as important as the strategies for reading that they gave her. What they did was embed further a growth mindset in her because it was the first time that someone engaged her not just about learning but her brain right it's it's not anything that you're doing there there's a a biological underpinning correct right it's the way your brain works and look how special it is and look how unique it is and look how unique you are and look how you learn and she went in and did the, um, the face-to-face testing where they ask her questions. And I was not able to sit in on those, that testing, right? Because they want, it's a research study. They want to cure a sample as possible. So they don't want parents in there going, you got it, baby. You can do it, right? So every time it was time to go to Georgetown, she knew what that meant. So, oh, they're going to look at my brain again. Yes, they're going to look at your brain. So there was paper pencil testing. There were also Um, MRI, they took imaging of Zola's brain, they would sit with her and talk to her about the quadrants of her brain. That's your brain. When I tell you her eyes lit up and she started to see herself different than just a student, she really started to see herself as a learner. She wasn't a student at such and such school. She's a learner. She's a lifelong learner. This brain of yours, you'll carry it for the rest of your your life. And it does some amazing things, right? And we just carried that theme on at home. Excuse me. Just how old is she at this point? At this point, she is eight. Okay. Because eight years old. Because when I when I talk to families or educators, there's oftentimes a hesitancy to even have these conversations and give a kid this degree of awareness at an early age. But it's great to hear like however they were phrasing it, they were doing it in an appropriate way where your child could understand, okay, my brain works differently. And it wasn't in a way that was harmful, but was actually empowering. Correct. 
And I'll just also say that um, the, the environment there was very supportive and very encouraging and very um, welcoming to a parent like myself that takes up space in the room, right? So they were very much like, yes, mommy, you know, come on in. The language that she was hearing, she, did, she wasn't hearing it for the first time. It was coming from myself. It was coming from Ms. Winifred. It was coming from, you know, her aunties and uncles but it was the first time in an educational setting. Right. And it was the first time outside of her community. Yeah. And it was the first time that she was validated in such a grand way. She gets to go to the university and get to go in the machine where they're taking pictures of her brain. Not everybody has access to that, but it was, we were very privileged, but it, it gave her a spark that, let me know we're going to be all right. She so embraced that. And I emphasize that because again, I was a little, I was anxious. I was an anxious mommy at that point because I'm desperate to get my child what she needs. That anxiety forced me to open up my community. And when I did, look what came back in, look what poured back in. So there was this loop between her um, core community and um, her an educational community that she had she didn't have before. Nikki, I want to chime also, in with mm-hmm. when you just said like going through the study. So the the study with Dr. Eden it took images of her brain, but then they also did the tutoring, right? And then they go back and look at the brain again to see how the brain is changing after getting this tutoring, how it's um, creating. I think it was the white matter. synapses. Yep. Yeah, yeah. I was creating connections. Yeah. And, right? and what different little bridges, mm-hmm. but it's making, but the key point that I want to hone on what you said was the difference in Zola when she got into an environment where they knew how to teach her and we had the same experience, right? It's like the first thing you notice is the confidence. Mm-hmm. <gasps> I can learn. I can mm-hmm. learn. And so that mm-hmm. is the, when you say you're anxious, we want our children to learn. And so when I went to visit an attorney, he told me to stop the tutoring. I couldn't fathom stopping it. I knew I couldn't afford it, but I'm like, for the first time, she's excited about learning because she's catching on because they're teaching her in a way um, that she can learn. So I continued to charge that credit card (laughs) because she was learning in her confidence to see your child that spark you're willing to do anything to keep that going. Anything. And you're touching on something, Winifred, that I wanted to speak on too. The school system was not willing or able or ready to do what needed to be done for my daughter until she hit absolute rock bottom. As a parent, we can't let that happen. We're watching the life force, the learning life force being sucked out of our child, right? I'm seeing this beautiful and vivacious and inquisitive five, six, seven-year-old who is slowly beginning to doubt herself. She's developing these anxieties. She's, it's so much easier to support a healthy whole child than it is to repair that damage. And so I remember when you said to me that the attorney, because you were seeking um, legal assistance, for holding the schools accountable. But I remember the attorney advising you and well-intended advising you to let her fail. 
I received the same advice. You have to let her fail so that you have data that indicates that she's not thriving in this environment. You have to have the data that, that says beyond a doubt that she's um, not learning. Well, at what cost? As a parent, that's too high of a price to pay. And as right? a Black parent. Like and as a Black parent, because in the meantime, she's being um, left behind and labeled her self-esteem as a learner, as a child, as a Black child, as a young Black girl is being crushed. And we're not going to, how do we put that back together? So we couldn't, we, we couldn't take that. I had an attorney tell me, stop tutoring her at home. Stop giving her extra support. Stop going into her classroom and reading with her. So is this the Linda Mood Bell uh, literacy? Is this the support that, that was a part of the study? It was Linda Mood Bell that was a part of the study. Okay, so they equipped, they weren't the ones that were telling me to stop. I just want to be clear. It was the school system and the, the workers in the school system and folks that I engaged to help me figure out a path forward inside of the school system. But when I'm inside of the Linda Mood Bell, the Georgetown study and the Linda Mood Bell environment, Zola, her self-esteem picked up and I noticed that her, I observed that her reading confidence first was extraordinary and then her fluency picked right. up and then her um, pacing picked up. So not, so her fluency got better, but she was still reading very slow. And then over the course of time, and this was a eight week study. So she was in the Linda Mood Bell training for eight weeks. And over the course of that time, her fluency, her speed, her um, uh, accuracy, her read, uh, accuracy with her words, it all started to come together. Mm -hmm. And what did you do after the study? Okay, because what did you decide after the study and how she was going to continue her okay. education? So um, while this is also going on, I'm realizing that this is not the environment for my student. There were other things that I observed that really led me to believe that the environment was as much of the problem as the dyslexia itself. So and Winifred, you know this. At one point, I decided, you know what? I'm going to open a school. <laughs> yes. I, was at, mm -hmm. I had spent a good year, year and a half um, trying to pull together a plan to open my own school. Yeah, so that we, went I could, we, went we, we went to visit. We went to visit schools and franchises to see what we could do. <laughs> and we were analyzing business plans and financials. And yes, we were. And I think, I mean, like we're, we're laughing here, but it's just clear that y'all did the deep dive. There are plenty oh, no, of parents that decide, that decide to homeschool their kids because of this, yep. right? I've also, in, in working with charter schools, seen a number of charter schools that began because they were parents who had dyslexic kids who weren't being well served. And so this was a, an alternative to getting the schooling that, again, they, sh they should have been able to receive it at their mm -hmm. public school. The first private school that Logan went to for dyslexia was started by 12 parents who came together to start that school because the other private dyslexia school had a waiting list. So 12 mm -hmm. parents got together and that school was established in 1994, right? And, and 12 parents got together. So it, this is not unheard of, right? And it's not something that has not happened. 
because when there is no option, you create one. That's right. The Linda Mood Bell programming happened at a school for neurodiverse learners. And so that environment further reinforced for Zola. This was during the summer, but there were still students there during the summer taking advantage of that schools, their students at the school, and they were taking advantage of their school. What, what school summer was that? Programming. What school was that? Uh, Chelsea? Was it? Oh, gosh. Now my I'm mind is going remember. like... Mm-hmm. It's, it's in College Park. Sierra. Sienna. Sienna School. Sienna School. The Sienna School. The Sienna School in Southern Maryland is, yes. a, is a private dyslexia school. Yeah. Yes, it is. And um, I had asked Zola if she would like to go to the Sienna School. You know, I was going to... We were going to be living in a, in a room somewhere for <laughs> the next... <laughs> the next 20 years, right, for her schooling. But she said no, which Zola was not wanting to be in a traditional schooling environment. She clung to the idea, you teach me, mommy. You know how to teach me. And all throughout our whole journey with dyslexia, she would constantly come back to that. You teach me. You know how to teach me. I learned with you. She was very clear. That's the other thing I think I learned from her. My daughter showed me how to teach her, showed me how, where she needed to. She was very clear what she wanted. She loved the Siena School and the staff there, but she was very clear that she didn't want to be in a traditional school. And that sent me down the path of looking to establish my own school. But the timing that it would take and the energy that it would take to do that. Um, I found myself um, removing that from the list of options in the moment. And so then I started to look at unschooling um, where we throw school out the window altogether and we focus on learning. We learn from our environment and unschooling requires that you then place your child, your student, your whole family of a matter of fact, in very rich learning environments, you create the learning. You allow your student to um, take the lead. If your student has a love for music, then you immerse that student in music and you you learn through music. If your student um, has a love for math, I noticed that Zola had a love for math, And also the sciences, she was constantly creating experiments on her own and taking data. Like she had these little pieces of paper where she would write down what she observed. Of course, no one told her that's what she was doing, right? But I was like, you're a scientist. You are running experiments and taking in data and you're um, comparing your notes. And yeah, I'm a scientist. You teach me, mommy. You see why she thought, I was the better teacher. She's like, yes, you teach me, mommy. Um, what it came down to, though, is that I did still need to work. So I'm like, okay, how do I work and give her what she needs? So unschooling at the time felt very, not impossible, but again, the level of energy and, and timing and emotional intelligence and right for mommy um, to do that and also hold down my own very demanding job would have been much more of a challenge 
than I was able to take on, right? And so then I looked to from unschooling to homeschooling. And then I started to learn about independent schools and micro schools and certain um, types of charter schools. And I looked into all of these. What was missing for me um, at that point was the, a cultural piece. The cultural relevance was very, very important to me because again, my child is tactile and kinesthetic. And I knew where that came from. And I knew that that was part of her superpower, right? That she would not let her environment squeeze that out of her, talk her out of that, right? Who she is. So it became very important for me to have a, a, an environment that was not all only rich and honored her um, learning style, but also had a cultural relevance. That was something that actually in our, our conversation with Dr. Julie Washington, that I, I believe she mentioned that she was ah. seeing a rise in more Afrocentric schools that were being started because this is something that a, a lot of families are, are looking for, you know, yes. as opposed to a, a more Eurocentric model. Absolutely. Because the relevance is everything. And being taught by, um, if I take my cues from Zola, being taught by someone who looks like you, someone who understands you, it brought the level of advocacy that she had to do for herself, right? Constantly explaining who she is and why she is and what she needs, right? To an audience that didn't quite understand, well-meaning, but didn't quite understand. She picked up on that very early. Mommy, you teach me. You teach me, mommy. They don't know how to teach me. In all of my research and studies and looking for the right fit, I had come across an African-centered homeschool co-op. At the time, I was still living with my um, family members, trying to figure out what we're going to do, how we're going to live, hoarding money. If this, you know, Winifred and Nikki school for the, you know, gifted and talented had to kick off. We needed seed money, you know. <laughs> the homeschool co-op, y'all, was literally less than a mile from my brother's house where I was living. Of a matter of fact, let me tell you how the ancestors, the universe, God, the creator works in ways, put you through the fire, but on the other end of it, there's so much beauty. I would go for a run. I'm very active. I go for a run every morning. I would run past the co-op every single day. I did not realize that it was a co-op. It literally is a humongous house. When we say homeschool, the children go home to school to learn every day. All right. And I was running past it. Now, they were very hard to connect with because they insist on having community, right? So they're not looking for the money, 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 right? Whoever can pay. They were very deliberate about the community that they were curating, cultivating um, like-minded individuals and families who were willing to be part of that community, not just drop their student off at school, right? And can you just describe this a little more? Because I, you know, our audience is going to be at all different kind of points of understanding. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I think homeschooling, I think of mom and dad creating an, a, 
educational environment, ah. like in a corner of the living room. I, I understand co-op is like a, mm -hmm. maybe a bunch of people working together and you're describing this house, but if, can you just explain it to us? Like what, what exactly does this the look founders, like? The founders of the co-op were homeschooling their students, right? And in their homeschooling journey, they saw a need in the community for what they were offering their children. And so, you know, slowly they started educating their friends and niece and nephew. And then they told someone who told someone who told someone, right? But they were all connected, family or friends who became family. And they collectively decided how they wanted to educate their children, what, the, what that pedagogy would look like, how. It's in the how. We're not banking students. We are walking with them through their educational journey. We are not simply throwing math concepts at our students. We are teaching them how to be mathematicians. I'll give you a, a, a story. Um, in third grade, uh, Zola came home with a failing grade on a, on a math test. I looked at her math test. Her answers were correct. So was her methodology. So I go to the teacher and I go, what's up with this? Why did she fail this test? She failed the test because she didn't use one of the three methods that we studied. She had to use one of the three methods. But she didn't use one of the three methods. She took some combination of those three methods, made it work for her very special brain, figured out that it was consistently correct. And she chose that because it, it clicked for her. And we were doing tutoring. I was tutoring at home. You teach me, mommy, right? So I was doing tutoring at home and I saw what she was doing and I thought it was fine. They marked her for not showing her work in the way that it was that they expected her. But that's, mathematicians don't think that way. Mathematicians use math and all sorts of math concepts to get to the answer. Right. They use math to problem solve. Her, her work is here. You can see she's consistent with the way she's done it every single time. Why is she being marked for that? That's innovation. That is her beautiful mind at work. Why are we discouraging that? Why are we telling her that's a failure? <laughs> and it's and it's also a very dyslexic thing to do, to be dyslexic able to, to, you know, like uh, the dyslexic advantage, that book that, the, you know, the researchers that wrote that, they talk about being able to pull from, you know, different pieces of detail, different data, and very quickly come up with a, a new solution. This is- And that is part, her this superpower. It's part of what the gift of dyslexics to the human race is being able to say, hey, y'all, here's a different way to do it. Right. Well, and it's where innovation and it's where new industries are formed. It's where, yeah. so why are we squeezing this out of children? Why are we telling them, no, this is not the way? Yeah, I, I wrote a poem and I, I, I wrote the line, um, we are the river of innovation from which the whole world drinks. Yes, yes. And this was at a traditional school. Which this was, was at a traditional off. school. Okay. This was at a traditional school. That's to give you an example of why that environment was not working for her and how I can see in very real ways that the environment wasn't working for her. And what I needed was, and based on how I'm teaching her in my home, what I needed was a was an environment that honored her learning style, her as a learner, but also had a cultural relevance. 
So it was different. Story. It was different at the co-op, was it? It was much different at the co-op. I found just by running my mouth and talking to parents about, you know, advocating for the children in education and right. A friend of mine said, I know someone. And I'm like, what? You know, someone at the co-op. I need to connect because I can't seem to connect. She connects me with um, one of the founders. The next day we go and have a meeting with them. The next day Zola's in the co-op. The co-op requires, it's an African-centered homeschooling community. Their uniform are African textile, right? We're not wearing brands. We're wearing the cloth of your of the motherland. Right. We are <laughs> right. At all times, we're at all times connecting to where we came from. We are at all times honoring where we came from. We are at all times recognizing the brilliance in each other. And um, we are at all times not only learning, but teaching. How were you able to make the co-op work? Because I know parents, like we said earlier, when they think homeschool, they think that they have to quit their job and that they Correct. have to. They have to do it, but she's in a homeschool co-op. So talk to us about how that works and, okay. and then let us know how she's doing now. Okay. So you can teach for anyone that is thinking about doing um, homeschooling. You can teach your child. The traditional school day is what? Uh, eight hours, six hours. I don't That's know. because there's, you know, lunch and recess and you know, all the in-between times that happen in a school, you can teach your student in two to three hours a day, literally, especially early elementary, and especially if you make learning just part of the environment. So I learned that very early on when I was researching homeschooling and was about to take on the um, challenge on my own. What I wanted, though, was community. And so I thought, okay, I can homeschool, but I need to find a community. Well, Zola goes into this big home every day. And the first thing they do is um, their welcome circle, their morning circle. You're asking me how, how it, would it look yep. like? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. So every morning, her community, her village, her uh, co-learners, meaning the teachers and the students get together and they have morning circle. They celebrate each other. They um, celebrate where they come from, the ancestors. They celebrate their ability to come together and learn together and grow together. So they set the stage for learning. Um, and then they break off into their cohorts. At the time, Zola was um, in um, fourth grade. Was it fourth? She was in fourth grade. And they don't do grades. They do cohorts. So you can have a student who would traditionally be in fourth grade in the same cohort with the student who would usually be in second grade because they work to mastery. So if you've already mastered the quote unquote second grade curriculum or subject matter, I don't want to say curriculum because it brings to mind, it conjures up textbooks and right, like traditional schooling. If you've mastered the material, right, of a, the, the second grade level, you move on. If you need more time in math, you stay with the cohort in math, your second grade math. But if you are progressing in uh, your literacy, you'll move on 
with the cohort that is um, in the fourth, fifth, sixth grade, wherever you are, at whatever level you are, you'll be with those children. And so in that way, students learn to embrace their strengths and work on their challenges, right? We have a student, we have many students, as a matter of fact, who um, would traditionally be in, at this point, seventh grade, eighth grade, who are finishing up their high school material. And so they will, um, at some point in the very near future, be working on college level courses. They were able to work to mastery and take control of the mastery of their learning. And as they move through material and move on to the next levels, or not, as they continue to work through the material that is a challenge to them, they know we'll work through this, we'll get to this. So how is Zola doing now? Zola is- Academically. So academically, Zola is soaring. And the story that um, comes to mind is the very first time uh, Zola had a literacy exam on her very first chapter book. She wasn't reading chapter books before, right? right? And this was the first year, the first um, you know, term at the co-op. We had a wonderful, amazing literacy guide, teacher, leader who opened the children up in ways that were just wonderful. She convinced Zola, we can do this and we can do this together. Zola was fresh off of her experience with Linda Mood Bell. So she was um, using the tools and strategies. Zola was reading and eager to read. And then came the exam. And when I say this was an exam, it was short answer, essay answer, fill in the blank, connect the phrase to the person. It was an exam. It was eight pages. Uh, Mama Eshek reviewed Zola's exam first because she knew I was, you know, we were chomping at the bit. I went to pick Zola up from the co-op and she comes running across the field, Zola does, waving something and she's crying. So I'm thinking, oh, you know, what happened? She's crying and she's like, mommy, I got my exam back. She got a hundred. Oh. She got a hundred and she was just like, like, mommy, they can teach me. She's crying saying this, mommy, they know how to teach me like you teach me, mommy. They know how to teach me. All along in our journey, I had said to Zola, baby, you are brilliant, magnificent. You are an awesome learner. You're just stuck you and mommy will work together to get you unstuck, right? This is how I know she's listening and she trusts me and she, she honored that because she, I got a hundred, I got a hundred. They know how to teach me. And she jumped into my arms and said, I'm trying not to get choked up. And she said, thank you for helping me get unsticky, mommy. Oh, oh gosh. All right, that just, sums it all up. There you have it. A story of a mom, a badass parent, right? Who, who did not give up, who stayed the course. And um, what I really want parents to take away from this journey is, you know, your child, you know, your child, follow your instinct, 
follow your gut, you or are your child's number one advocate, even when you don't understand the language that the school is using. Do you want to end with one piece of advice? Um, because this, you know, it's it, it's okay if we all get choked up. We've been we can see each other in this interview. Y'all, y'all mm-hmm. just listen to our voices, but I think we all been fighting out, fighting back tears throughout all of this. Mm-hmm. But uh, Nikki, just before you go, do you do you maybe have one piece of advice for our for our audience, you know, families that are that are maybe going through this this same journey? Center your child in all things. Don't be afraid to take up space. Don't be afraid to advocate for your child ferociously and center your little one, center your learner. I followed the breadcrumbs that Zola dropped for me. I trust Zola immensely. She has an instinct and a consciousness that if I followed traditional parenting thought, I would have ignored and just put her, say, in the Siena school, right? But she was insistent. You teach me, mommy. They don't know how to teach me. You teach me, mommy. You know how to teach me. And when I really examined, what is it that she's trying to connect with when she tells me that? I realized that I honored her as a learner. And so then I just sought out environment that honored her in the same way that I did. But it really took me being super in tune with that little one. They're not just here, you know, living life in a passive way. They are in tune. They know what they need. So if you listen to them and center them, you cannot go wrong. And then once you, you've listened to them and centered them, their voice, then you go into a room and you speak for them and don't be afraid to take up space. You know, I, I appreciate Winifred's comment about, you know, uh, you know, being a, a voice and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the strength of the parent. But for me, that's what I was kept hearing. Like, it almost seemed like from day one, your daughter knew she knew what she knew what she needed and maybe didn't always have the language, but but right. knew it. And and I even love, I mean, as a as a professional storyteller, the fact that that teacher is mama somebody, right? Like the at the co-op. It's like I have to find the extension of the mothering and that approach to education that I that I'm that I know is working for me when I'm at home with you. There you go. And uh, they don't refer to the students as Students, they say brothers, sisters, daughter, right? What's your sister doing over there? She's, oh, oh, your sister's struggling with that math problem. Who can help her, right? Because it's in teaching that we learn and so on, like this symbiotic relationship. And that's what she was tuning into when she kept saying, you know how to teach me, mom. You know how to teach me. Okay, okay. Well, now I'll wrap this up. (laughs) Thank this, you. Is, this has been a great interview. Great interview. <laughs> yeah, thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being so candid, for, for sharing every piece of this journey. I know it's not easy. And like what Derek said, I was like, you're not going to make me cry. Like, you're not, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> about to cry during this interview here. But again, tune in, guys, next week. It's a wrap. <laughs> tune in next week where we'll continue to bring you lived experiences and more unfiltered conversations with experts in the field around all things Black and dyslexic. Make sure you subscribe and follow the Black and Dyslexic podcast, where we educate, empower, and equip Black and underrepresented minorities.
The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is partially funded by Morgan Cares and the Center for Urban Health Disparities Research and Innovation, awarded by the National Institute of Minority Health and Health Disparities. The Black and Dyslexic Podcast is sponsored by Dyslexia Advocation Incorporated, a 501c3 charitable organization located in Baltimore City, Maryland, whose mission is to equip parents of children with dyslexia and other language-based learning disabilities with the necessary tools to help their children become successful readers. You can find them on the web at www.soallcanread.org.